It's good to see you this morning. John chapter 21, you can return to in your Bibles. And we'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 15. Our, our focus this morning is on verses 18 and 19. And we're really continuing to see what we began to see last week. Last week we started to see something beautiful as we watched our Lord graciously restore Peter after the fall that he suffered in chapter 18. Jesus brought Peter toward restoration in last week's passage, in part by appealing to Peter's love for him. In the moment, it didn't feel beautiful to Peter, or did it? We saw in verse 17, Peter is grieved in the moment by what's happening. It seems like he didn't immediately understand what Jesus was doing as he asked him that question three times. Peter, do you love me? That's what we focused on last week and what we sought to understand. But by stopping at verse 17 like we did, we were stopping right in the middle of the exchange. Which is to say Jesus isn't done yet making the point to Peter that he's making in this interaction. We have heard him commission Peter for work. And we've heard him tie that work to the love that Peter has for Christ. But then Jesus finishes what he says by sharing something with him. Jesus goes so far as to tell Peter where this love, where this service is going to take him. This morning, our task is to look at that, to look at this prophecy that Jesus makes here, to understand the picture that it paints And not just to understand how Peter profited by it, but to understand how we as God's people are to profit from what has been recorded for us here in God's word, for us to profit from it and to be equipped by it. And there are three things that I would have us see and consider this morning about this prophecy that we're going to hear. Let me share them with you before we read. These will be our three points if you're taking notes this morning. I want us to see first that Jesus' prophecy points to Peter's death. Second, that Jesus' prophecy gives hope. And then third, that Jesus' prophecy acknowledges fear. This is what we're going to see. Um, I'd like us to read more than what we're going to look at. So we'll read John 21, verse 15, all the way down to the end of verse 23. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? John 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. And then we begin the passage we'll look at this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, 
You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Jesus' prophecy here to Peter points to Peter's death. This is the first thing for us to just be clear about. Look again at what he says, starting at verse 18. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's a comparison he's making, isn't it? It's comparing his former youthful self with his future older self. And the comparison he's making, you could say, is about the ability to direct oneself, uh, freedom, a certain kind of autonomy. There's a freedom in youth that we lose when we grow old. This is a, he's making a statement that, that, uh, that makes sense even at that level. We understand uh, the point that he's making about that difference. But there are clues in the way he words this that something more specific than just that truism about aging is being pointed at here. John spells it out clearly for us in verse 19, doesn't he? As he adds, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. But how does it point to Peter's death? Most directly, it does so by the inclusion of the phrase, stretch out your hands. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Now, that's an expression that we have record of being, by that time, a euphemism all by itself for crucifixion. It's a figure of speech that brought someone's mind to crucifixion immediately. It's not hard to imagine that that would be the case. Imagine if we lived in a culture in which crucifixions, this, this public execution to make a point uh, was something that was done regularly. Think of what we have seen about that, how gruesome it was, how powerful it was. It's not hard to imagine that that reality would impact things like our figures of speech uh, and our common expressions. And that's what this did. Add to that the idea of dressing yourself, as he puts it here. That the word can also refer to something like just the tying of a belt around you. Uh, securing yourself. Uh, so it, it, it's easily playing on this idea of Peter tying his own belt when he was young, but a day coming in which he will be tied by someone else. Remember, they would secure in crucifixion. Before you were crucified, they would secure the crossbeam 
to the person's arms and make them carry it. So for that reason, the Holman Christian Bible translates verse 18 like that. It says, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. In fact, we know from church history, don't we, that Peter will die a martyr's death. He will be crucified, probably at the hands of Nero, as an old man. I wonder what it was like to be told about that end many years beforehand, and then to live to that time. When I think about that, maybe you're like me, the first things that come into my mind as far as how that would affect me are negative, not positive. Uh, it's, it's here where we again are helped by thinking about the context that Peter is in at this moment. Remember Peter's devastation as Jesus had looked him, had looked him in the eyes during the trial after the third denial, right? Remember what that did to Peter. Remember the grief of verse 17 right before this. As Jesus asks him a third time whether he loves him or not, Peter is unsure what exactly he's getting at. Peter is in a very uh, sensitive place right now. He is a broken man who is just being brought back to a place of wholeness. Peter's Lord has risen from the dead. His Lord has conquered death. Think about the news he's being given here in that context. He's receiving news about what he cares most about in this life. I know that you love me, Peter, and I still will give you the privilege of serving me so he's told Peter, feed my flock. You love me, love me by giving that love to my sheep. And now he tells him this. He tells him how it's going to end. And what does he say after he's told him about how his path in this life is going to end? He says at the end of verse 19, follow me. Friends, do you remember a time when these two men had a very similar conversation to this? Would you go back with me for just a moment to the end of chapter 13? John 13, starting at verse 31. Remember this exchange. And as I read it, see if you don't hear some similarities here. John 13, 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I am with you. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, where I am going, listen to this. Where I am going, you cannot follow me. Now, <coughs> excuse me, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Do you hear similarities in that exchange to our verses this morning? The context is his departure. He tells the disciples to put their focus on one another, love one another. He says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. He tells them that this love for his children will become the defining attribute of his followers in the world. But then here in chapter 13, it's followed by Peter's questions about following. Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. It really is an amazing thing to read in the context of John 21, where we are, verses 18 and 19, because now, in John 21, after Peter's own denials of Jesus have proven those chapter 13 claims false, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now that his denials have proven that to be an insufficient confidence in himself. And now in chapter 21, that Jesus has said again to Peter, love me by loving my sheep. It's now time, he says to Peter. It is now time for you to follow me. I told you before, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And now he says to Peter, follow me. And what will that look like? Well, it will look like loving and obeying God until it costs him his life. Now, what we need to see this morning is that amid this talk, amid this uh, prediction and even commissioning to Peter to be faithful unto death, this is what he's telling him to do. Amid that, we can see two separate emotional responses on display and being described. We can see in these verses both the presence of hope, even as he calls him to follow him to his death, the presence of hope and the presence of fear. And the rest of our time this morning is spent considering how both of those reactions are proper together as our Lord calls us to follow him in his sufferings. It is so instructive to us what we see here. And it is just always great to find, isn't it, something that is universally instructive for Christians about a topic that is universally applicable? What topic could be more universally applicable to us than that of suffering and even death awaiting us? We hear two tones playing amid this call from Christ to Peter to follow him unto death. Let's listen to each of those tones to hear not just what they mean for Peter, but what they mean for us 
as well. The first one to hear is the tone of hope. In a way, we've already seen it because we've seen what this prophecy has meant to Peter. I mean, this has meant the granting of his greatest wish. What he wants is to be found faithful to his Lord. And he is learning in this call as his Lord tells him what he sees. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning. And he's learning from the lips of his Lord that the day will come where he will be led in following his Lord to follow after him even in martyrdom. This has meant the granting of his greatest wish to be found faithful by his Lord. But the more you think about the significance of Jesus making this statement, the more hope is produced. Consider something, for example. Consider that this means for Peter, that when Jesus called Peter to follow him, consider that these details mean that Jesus already knew exactly what was entailed in that command. Never will Peter have to struggle with the thought, the temptation, that maybe Jesus didn't understand the nature of the path that Peter would have to walk in order to follow him. Surely my Lord would not have told me to follow him if he'd known it would mean this for me. And now Peter knows that the difficulty of the path was never to catch his Lord, his master, off guard. And when the path grows difficult, Peter can remember Jesus' words and say of that difficulty, say of that trial, according to plan. He always told me what it was going to be like to follow him. How hope-producing is that, to be able to say that about what we go through? That there is nothing that our shepherd leads us through that he has been unaware of or caught off guard by. He is the one leading us on the path that we follow. And he has told us that there is darkness there. He's told us that there are valleys there. Also consider how the very thing that John adds in verse 19, the reality of that would have been a source of great hope for Peter. Verse 19 calls this path, this end, John calls it this, the kind of death by which Peter was to glorify God. Peter had said before, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And now he's learned, yes, Peter, I will grant you that end. And yes, just as you've hoped, God will be glorified by your death. Any news about our death is doubtless news that will be received with some fear, as we'll see soon. But it's not hard, I think, at all to, to see the ways that this revelation would bring great joy and hope to Peter. But what about us as we hear this? And a group like us, so many of whom, I assume likely, will not be called to the death of martyrdom. Does, does this verse apply to us? In any way, does this verse speak to us into the path that our Lord has called us to that produces great hope? I want to suggest to you that it does, very much so it does. So long as we're living with us within a certain frame of mind. But it's that very frame of mind that a text like this can bring us to. The first thing to be clear about together is that we are not being told here 
of something unique to the death of martyrdom. Notice what is said in verse 19. Peter, in his death, will glorify God. What John says Peter was learning here was with what kind of death he was to glorify God. I don't think we're meant to understand that simply as um, Peter was learning which kind of martyrdom he was going to receive. Because a martyr's death is the only death of his people that pleases God. I don't think that's the picture at all. I think instead John is saying that death is an opportunity for any believer to glorify God. And Peter is learning of which kind of death he would glorify God by enduring. I want to share with you this morning some, a little bit at length in some places, uh, from several godly voices in the church's past. You can imagine that something like death, these sorts of texts, have been very thought-provoking to God's people through time. And it's a blessing to get to look back and to hear how others have thought and written on these things. Um, I will do. (laughs) I'll do my very best to get through them. Please do your very best to ignore me uh, if you need to and to hear what these men have said. So uh, first, J.C. Ryle wrote this. The thing before us is probably not considered as much as it ought to be. We are so apt to regard life as the only season for honoring Christ. Life as the only season for honoring Christ. And action as the only mode of showing our religion that we overlook death, except as a painful termination of usefulness. You hear the kind of thought that he's bringing up. This is so common. This is such a struggle. He says, yet surely this ought not to be so. We may die to the Lord as well as live to the Lord. We may be patient sufferers as well as active workers. Like Samson, We may do more for God in our death than ever we did in our lives. It is probable that the patient deaths of our martyred reformers had more effect on the minds of Englishmen than all the sermons they preached and all the books they wrote. End quote. Now in that, you notice he's focusing in particular on the deaths of martyrs, but the point he's making goes beyond martyrdom. It goes to this concept of a kind of death that can glorify God, that can put him on display. It's not his intention to simply be thinking of martyrdom. He continues like this. He writes, we may glorify God in death by being ready for it whenever it comes. The Christian who is found like a sentinel at his post, like a servant with his loins girded and his lamp burning, with a heart packed up and ready to go, The man to whom sudden death, by the common consent of all who knew him, is sudden glory. This, this is a man whose end brings glory to God. We may glorify God in death by testifying to others the comfort and support that we find in the grace of Christ. It is a great thing when a mortal man can say with David, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The Christian who, 
like Standfast in Pilgrim's Progress, can stand for a while in the river and talk calmly to his companions, saying, My foot is fixed sure. My toilsome days are ended. This, this is a man whose end brings glory to God. Deaths like these leave a mark. Deaths like these leave a mark on the living and are not soon forgotten. Let us pray while we live in health that we may glorify God in our end. Let us leave it to God to choose the where and when and how and all the manner of our departing. Let us only ask that it may glorify God. I read an account this week that I had never heard before that John, John Wesley, John Wesley is the founder of Methodism. This was a fascinating account. It was describing a, a conversation that John Wesley was in with, with an opponent who was criticizing some of the doctrinal positions of Methodism, which I would join him in that criticism, complaining to him about faults within Methodist doctrines. And John Wesley replied to that man, well, at any rate, our people die well. And that was just... <laughs> Excuse me. It was just striking to me to think about that as a reply and how powerful a thing that is to be able to say. That's no small thing, is it? to be able to say. And if this verse gives us hope that God may be pleased and glorified, not only by our lives, but by our deaths, if this gives us that hope, my friends, what desire can that create in us? Oh, that that would be said of me, that my death brought glory to God. It, was, it struck me this week to, this was thinking about that, to Consider how true it must be that an end like that has got to be a thing that has to be prepared for. Doubtless it's God who prepares us as he brings us through the things that he brings us through. He teaches us to hold on to this life lightly. He, he, there's so much that he does in our lives to prepare us for that. But this is an area in which we bear responsibility to work in that Direction. If I spend every spare moment between now and my final hour hopping and jumping from one task to the next and one distraction or entertainment to another, I don't know why I should be expecting to be ready to die well when that day comes. It may be that we're learning from this sort of thought that we need to leave ourselves alone with our own thoughts a bit more than we currently are. These are the elements of hope that we can see in a text even like this one that speaks about something so hard to hear. Jesus does know our end. He does know what he's calling us to. We can glorify God in our death. And he has promised to guard our faith until that day. It's tremendous hope. But I've said that there are two tones that we ought to notice. The first is hope. The second one is perhaps not as expected as the first one was for us to consider. The second tone 
is smaller here in, this, in these two verses, but it's important to hear, and it's fear. Jesus' prophecy acknowledges inevitable fear. I'm drawing this from the statement made at the end of verse 18. Do you notice that when Jesus is describing Peter's earthly end, the one that he's going to remain faithful to, the one in which he will glorify God, you notice that as they lead Peter to death, he says they will be leading him to where he does not want to go. Now, why would that be? Does Peter not want to depart and be with the Lord, like Paul talks about in Philippians 1? Why would Peter not want to go where he will be led at the end of his life? Well, the reason for that is a deep theological truth that requires a mind like Augustine to explain. Are you ready to hear this and try to process it? Here's how Augustine gives this to us. He says, no man likes to die. This is not hard for us to understand if we're just being honest with ourselves. There is something real that's, that's acknowledged here. No man likes to die. Augustine continued like this. A state of feeling so natural that not even old age had power to remove it from blessed Peter. Listen to this. Were there nothing or little of irksomeness in death, the glory of the martyr would not be so great as it is. You hear what Augustine is acknowledging? There. Death is irksome. I don't know the last time I've used that word, but that helps it to even have a, more of a punch. Or since we're looking to the past, listen to what Calvin said about this. It ought to be remembered that the dread of death is naturally implanted in us. For to wish to be separated from the body is revolting to nature. Even the martyrs experienced a fear of death similar to our own, so that they could not gain triumph over the, the enemies of truth except by contending with themselves. This is a fear that is natural to us. And it's helpful to me to hear Jesus acknowledge its presence. Acknowledge the fearfulness of the path, even as he tells us to follow him in it. I think what we're seeing in some of this is that age-old dynamic between things like fear and courage. Or between fearful circumstances and fear-driven actions. You could think of it as uh, the battle between fear the inevitable feeling versus fear the sinful master. And actually, it's an important distinction for us to understand clearly because we can misunderstand what we're being told when the Bible tells us again and again, doesn't it, not to fear. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Joshua 1.9, these are, these are memorable verses for us, right? Uh, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Or what Blake read to us at the beginning, Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I do not think it's correct to think of those as condemnations of the experience of feeling fear. That is a thing that is inevitable to us. It is outside of our control in so many times and situations. Instead, what we're being told to do is to live 
That is, to act, to think, to decide on the basis of our faith in God and his promises, not on the basis of the words spoken by that fear. The difference between unbelief and belief is like the difference between cowardice and courage. Both cowardice and courage are reactions that only happen in a fearful situation. You can't be a coward until you're in a fearful situation. You can't be courageous until you're in a fearful situation. And yet, I will react one way or the other depending on what I believe. And so, David can write in Psalm 23 that he will fear no evil as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. Obviously, that does not mean that he will look around at the valley of the shadow of death and yawn and say, is this it? What's the big deal? It is fearful. But he will see his shepherd leading him. And because of that, he will not fear. Meaning, because of that, he will be able to continue to walk forward and to follow his shepherd. He will trust his shepherd. And that trust will not remain in his brain. It will come out of his legs as he walks faithfully forward after Christ. In Revelation uh, chapter 2, amid the letters to the churches, there's a letter to the church at Smyrna. John, this John, is writing those. And he describes to that church some very fearful circumstances indeed that are coming their way. Some of them are about to be imprisoned. Some of them are about to die. He tells them that that is coming very quickly. And he says to them in verse 10 there, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. What on earth could that mean? In that circumstance. Well, what it means is, let your trust in the Lord drive you and not your fear and its lies. And so I think John is simply restating the command not to fear when he then says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's what it means to not be afraid. It means to be faithful in the midst of that fearful circumstance. My friends, we must hear how our Lord commanded Peter in the midst of fearful circumstances because it's what he commands of us as well. Your Lord commands you to follow him through whatever fearful valley he is going to call you. Our good shepherd is good indeed, and he is near us. He's given us more than enough promises to encourage us and strengthen us in those times. But he has also made clear in places like this and many others that he has made no plans to spare us from fearful and dark circumstances. He does not intend to spare us those as we walk through this life. He has us here to represent him on earth. Did he come to stay aloof from the dark and fearful moments? of this world and of this life. So in a commissioning like we have here with Peter this morning, what's given to us is the joining together of two realities that lay before not just Peter, but lay before all of us. All of those who live in this time where we are waiting for his return. They are the joint realities of hope and fear. Fear is inevitable, and our Lord knows it. He knows that he calls us to live lives that will include fearful things and times. But my friends, because of who he is, 
Hope is just as inevitable for those who are following the Good Shepherd. And it's because of that that he can issue us this command that he issues to Peter. What are we to do in the midst of this? This place, this life, this season that we will live our lives in, what are we to do? It's because of all of this that he issues us this command. Follow me. That's what you are to do. I walked before you in the tribulations of this world. He told them in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So my friends, may we hear our Lord's command to Peter here in the very context that he gave it. And may we find ourselves being called to the very same thing. He has not given us the details of our final day. But he has told us what life in this world for his people is going to be like. If you're unsure of what that description is that he's given us in his word, you need to spend more time in your Bible. But if you want a, a good Cliff Notes version, a little snapshot, you could just read Pilgrim's Progress. You get a pretty good visual of exactly how his word has told us this life is going to look for his children. Speaking of Cliff Notes, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. It's going to be a road fraught with hardship and trial. And it will not be a road that he will make us to walk alone on. Because our king has gone before us to light the way. He's promised to be with us every step of the way. And he has given us companions to walk alongside of us all the way. These are the things that our best songs acknowledge, aren't they? We sing about this stuff. Both sides of the journey. We sing about the fears. We sing about the hopes. And when we hear those songs, we're struck by them because of how true they ring. And the fact that they make us want to live by that faith that looks to the Lord for strength. Hear it as I close by reading these verses from the hymn written in 1847. Abide with me. We sing these things. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight. Tears lose their bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where, grave, thy victory, I triumph still if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Abide with me. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we sing such things, we pray such things. Abide with us. We pray them with the confidence of those who know they are praying your words after you. We are only reflecting to you the very promises you have given us. As you've told us that all of those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who have been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment on our, on our inheritance, 
you have told us that you abide with us always. Your Son has assured us that he came to do your will and that your will was that he would lose nothing of what you have given him. God, what comfort that is for us on a day-to-day basis. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are clear on those things. There is so much that you have in store for us that we do not know yet in our lives. And yet because of the pure, inerrant word that you have given to us, there is perfect clarity we can see it through if we are looking through the lens of Scripture. Cause us, God, to be a people of your word who are able to look at everything that you bring to us through its lens so that we trust you. As we fear, we take our fears to you. As we are uncertain, we rest in the certainties of your word and your promises. Lord, thank you for the rock that you have given us to live through this life standing upon. We give you this thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have the privilege this morning of sharing together in communion at the Lord's table. We do this as a church body once a month in obedience to Christ's command. And we do it as a means of declaring. We're declaring to each other. We're declaring visibly to the world around us our union with Christ. That's what we declare at this table. It's by the giving of his body for us, the shedding of his blood, to atone for our sins, that we have come to find forgiveness and to be reconciled to our God and King. Those are the very realities that are pictured in the bread and the cup. So let's join together then. Let's prepare our minds for this time of worship.